Welcome to episode 213 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have a good friend and one of the premier minds regarding animal rights law in the country, Attorney Michael Harris. He is the Director of Wildlife Law Program for the organization Friends of Animals. And we, we talked to Attorney Michael Harris about Martha Nussbaum, a rock star, really, in academia, very respected intellectual, regarding many things, including capabilities theory, as it relates to animal rights law. And uh, we discuss that with Attorney Harris, as well as some of the approaches that renowned attorney Stephen Weiss, another animal rights lawyer, really a trailblazer in many regards, regarding autonomy for animals. We compare that to capabilities theory, which is better. We talk about compassionate conservation. We get into a little bit of uh, the ancient philosophers and uh, have, have some fun too. Don't get me wrong, it's not just highbrow intellectualism, it's a lot of fun to boot. I have a cold on top of it, so uh, I'm a little loopy. That adds an extra texture I think you'll find. We have an EW essay written by yours truly called Coup d'etat. I share an op-ed piece by conservative columnist David Brooks, titled A Return to National Greatness. We have a poem by yours truly as well called Diphthongs on Sale. And as of course is always the case, several great tunes. Let's get started and it's nice to have you with us here. Episode 213 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
This is coup d'état. As absurd as it may seem, the full bright panacea of the dim-witted hater does apparently cling and is steadfast in opposition to anything that presupposes justice, includes research, and is informed by a reasonable sense of historical truth. I am not so fragile or disillusional as to believe I am at the basic levels any different than all human beings. I am biased too and have reactionary impulses designed by fear, pride, want of satisfaction and to satisfy. My name not matters so much as does the programming I have been subjected to since the inception of this heartbeat and these brain waves and the intangible depth and weight of my soul, the keen lightness of my spirit too. Oh, but a wonderful, wandering fool I be. I know this about me. What one does with such insight, albeit tempered and perhaps tethered as well, by the bubble that dust has certainly created, as absurd as it may seem, with some semblance of substantive hope, one must gleam into the teeth and heavy hand of the bully, backward, dictatorial efforts, so many of our cowardly, powerful push, subtle, blatant, and twisted, complex, simple, in many colors and textures of protection and empty promises of a better way. Hip, hip, hooray for a shit show federal shakedown parade as the coup d'etat works to dither all our good work and evolutionary collective consciousness to wit today. Find 
just a little piece of mind. Now, when I was a young man, I believed in everything. Michael Harris, Friends of Animals. Is this who I am speaking with? It sure is. How are you, E.W.? I'm fine. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, Attorney Michael Harris, a good friend of ours here on uh, Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And I have a bit of a cold. I apologize to you and everyone listening, but we'll get through it. Hopefully I don't sound too nasally. No, I wouldn't have known. I'm sorry to hear that. It's um, it's going around our area as is, well. Is it? Yeah, my little kids. You know, my son has it. He's you know with the five year old, so he gets everything that comes around. Well, that's exactly how I got it too from my kids. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, how's everything going, sir? Things are great. Um, having a very productive uh, start of our year, although. Since the last time we talked, we live in a completely mixed up, upside down world. But, um, <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, that's an understatement. 
we still have to try to survive and continue on, right? Yeah, maybe we'll get into that. Uh, I know you're, you're talking about who won the Golden Globes. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I've never seen such a amazing uh, acceptance speeches before. <laughs> yes, Merrill. <laughs> but let, let's. I, I know you're excited about something that's uh, that's going on with uh, your organization, Friends of Animals. You you have a new associate, I guess, someone who's, who's uh, helping you with some things. Um, Martha Nussbaum, right? Well, I wouldn't call her an associate. Uh, she, she's an amazing woman. If your viewers don't know who she is, she's a professor of um, philosophy at the University of Chicago, and she's a, a, a renowned and and I mean, um, you know, probably with respect to folks uh, in our world, she's probably going to go down in history as a, a Socrates type, but she's a renowned philosopher and feminist. Uh, she's been around for about 30 years now and, 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 and just has got amazing things to tell us about our world. Interestingly, she was here in Denver this past um, Monday um, with, uh, with those of us at the Friends of Animals. We did a presentation about animal rights, something that Martha is a strong supporter of. Um, but she also did a speech earlier in the day that I was able to attend about um, the political election and uh, the psychology of fear and the, the politics of fear. So um, she has a lot to say about a lot of things that are going on in our world. And, and um, she's got quite a broad um, breadth of, um, of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, yeah. She's, as you said, she's a rock star, basically, in academia. Uh, she's, uh, she's, in particular, with uh, humanities. She, I, I know a bit about her myself from over the years. When you first mentioned Martha, I didn't know who you were talking about. And, uh, uh, but then you, you informed me it was Nussbaum. And, wow, I mean, the fragility of goodness is one of, I think, her most uh, important and well-known books, but she's written several. Um, and uh, as you mentioned, Socrates, you know, uh, that, that level of, of, of a philosopher she indeed is. She's the person that goes around and criticizes Noam Chomsky, and he, he makes note. Uh, yes, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I have to say, um, I, I, you and I have both probably seen a lot of amazing speakers. You know, I mean, I think of someone like you know, we just saw Michelle Obama last year speak, and just how you know emotional and amazing that was. And and we and I you know say about the president Obama as well, and a lot of people that I've seen. But you know what? Watching Martha on Monday, and I want to gush too much here, but watching her on Monday, I was just like. I've never seen anything like this because it's not necessarily her presentation style. It's not as smooth as, certainly not as smooth as Michelle Obama's was at the, um, the convention last year. But, you know, she's able to take, like, by memory passages that were written 2,000 years ago and make them rel related to something that was in the New York Times this morning. And um, or when she gets asked questions by, by people who are, you know, should be her intellectual peers – uh, just to watch her and just sort of like slice through the answers, you know, and and everyone just sort of goes, yeah, why don't we think of that, right? So, um, boy, it was it was amazing to watch. It was it's, it it was probably the closest thing to watching a hu human computer mind um, work in, in you know on the spot. It was it was really amazing, and I think everyone there. Um, well, first of all, to have her here in Denver and to have her affiliated with Friends of Animals. 
um, is is we're just we're just really honored by that. But then to, to have the opportunity to sit there in person and hear her thoughts about what's going on in the world today. It's well, an amazing opportunity. Well, let, let me let me be clear. What what kind of affiliation uh, does she have right now with uh, Friends of Animals? And what did yeah. she well, share share a bit of what uh, she shared what she uh, spoke about? Yeah, I, it's a really important step forward for not only our organization but for animal rights. And so, so we, we actually um, uh, first um, got connected with Martha through her daughter. Uh, her daughter is a lawyer and an animal rights activist, and um, we began working with her a couple of years ago. And um, her mother became very impressed with what was going on, and sort of revealed her interest in in participating as well about a year and a half ago. But it's been a slow process to see exactly how it would all work out. Um, but I guess this is what I would say if I if I could take a moment and when you're your listeners hear about animal rights. There's a, there's not really a single definition of that for sure, but in general, there are sort of two sort of paths that animal advocates, animal lawyers are taking. And one is something that most people are totally familiar with. If you've heard of the Humane Society, then you know about trying to stop animal abuse, torture, just you know the types of lo- things that we want to make illegal. Um, and to prevent you know, pain and agony, and, and whether it's domesticated pets or farm animals or even wildlife. You know, the yahoos who just think that they could abuse these animals. And there's been a long history of, of, of trying to improve uh, the standard of treatment for animals, and, um, and there's a, a body of law for that, and a lot of people work in that area. The other is more um, tied to rights itself, that is, um, it sort of starts with this premise that animals have autonomy and that um, they should be given legal protections and privileges, often normally associated with humans, in order to protect um, that autonomy. And over the years, we've seen different efforts um, trying to get personhood for maybe chimpanzees or for whales so that they could have sort of constitutional protections in this country. I've seen efforts like to try to um, established guardian ad litems for animals so that they could um, uh, go to court and try to get compensation for, um, you know, think of it this way. Uh, uh, if you got a whale in captivity at SeaWorld and SeaWorld's making a bunch of money off of it, uh, arguments have been made maybe that money should go to benefit the whale and its species, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's the one that's being, you know, commercialized. And so, um, there, that's that's sort of the route that Friends of Animals is working on this animal rights front, but this notion of autonomy has always been a problem, and it was first advanced by a really well-known uh, scholar. His name is Stephen Weiss. Uh, he's probably he, he should be given tons of credit for um, leading the way with respect to animal rights um, over the last 20, 30 years. But this notion of autonomy has always caused real problems because. What does that mean? Um, philosophers would tell you that autonomy means a lot of different things, and Martha is, it would, would go into that in more detail if she was here. But, um, but the, the reality is, is that when it's written down in briefs or when it's being argued in a case in, in a courtroom, it often sounds a lot like intelligence. Right. And, right. and so 
you know, so yeah, a chimpanzee, high level of intelligence, a whale, a dolphin. Um, but from a standpoint of someone who has a broader perspective on animal rights, that's not a very good way to characterize autonomy because it leaves out, you know, potentially 90% of all animals because we don't know their intelligence level or they don't express it in a way that, um, that makes us sort of inherently understand it by its facial recognitions, the way it acts, the way it can sort of communicate with us. Very few animals have reached that level with, with, with their relationships with humans. So, and it's also caused a real problem for Steve and others in the courtroom because even when judges are convinced that a particular animal like a chimpanzee is highly intelligent and displays some level of autonomy, um, the, the judges have said, well, is that really enough? Is that what a person is all about? And, and um, the courts that have opined on it have sort of thought, don't persons really also need to be able to exercise rights and obligations of citizenship? And, you know, and, and, and since an animal can't do that, then even if they're auto autonomous, they shouldn't be really given rights like persons. So this is where Martha is really important. And so you mentioned the fragility of goodness and her early work on that and tying in Greek tragedies and philosophies. But her more recent work, and really what has been the core of her existence for the last 20 years, um, is capabilities theory. And capabilities theory was first sort of uh, focused on um, those of us in the human population that have given, been given less treatment historically by the law for various reasons, mental disabilities, whether that's because you were born that way or you developed Alzheimer's disease or something else debilitating as you aged, um, people that have gone through severe emotional trauma, uh, children that have been abused and left uh, uh, on their own, and, uh, and, and, a, and a number of other um, categories of, of human beings that have been um, less than able to defend their own rights. And it wasn't very long ago uh, it was, you know, even when I was born in the 1960s and clearly in the 1950s, our legal system for deal, de, to dealing with these people was to institutionalize them, to put them somewhere where their physical needs would be taken care of. But we didn't really, in the law at least, really didn't look at them as really human beings. You know, they didn't. The law didn't really care about nurturing. Uh, um, some of their what Martha would call central capabilities, that is their body integrity, their ability to play, their sense of imagination at whatever level they may have, their ability to have some emotion, affiliation with someone around them. Uh, quite honestly, I think it's more simply put, an ability to have some type of meaningful life. And so Martha's work has been instrumental and, and others with, who, have, who have adopted the capabilities approach in, 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 in helping to lay the basis for expanding legal rights for these types of, of, of people. And it naturally lays the foundation for providing additional rights for animals as well. And Martha has embraced this in, in more recent uh, times, and she actually wrote a book um, or co-authored a book on animal rights, supplying the capabilities theory. And her daughter has been really instrumental. Her daughter thought uh, from an early age that her mother's work could play out in the, in the, in the animal world. 
So capab through capabilities, <coughs> excuse me, capabilities theory, it re it opens up or adds to redefines the idea of autonomy, and in, in the legal argument of whether or not someone should have that. I would say what it what it does is it it lays the foundation for why we should provide um, uh, whether it's a, a an animal or a, a human that is um, not necessarily functioning um, at the type of emotional level that we would that you know that, that that most of us are for treating them with the same respect and dignity, giving them the same legal protections. For instance. Um, you and I expect to decide where we want to live and who we want to live with and how we want to make ourselves happy. Some of us, some people in this world are not necessarily able to make those decisions, but that doesn't mean that we should just institutionalize them. Our legal system should design a way through guardian ad litems and other, other mechanisms to try to ascertain what would best provide a living situation for that person so that they can live up to their full capability, even I, if those capabilities are diminished. And I imagine, I mean, there are inherent problems with that, given in many cases the, the kind of sentient beings we're talking about uh, do indeed have a difficulty expressing or communicating to others uh, clearly, so we wouldn't necessarily know what they really want or prefer. And you could, and you could say that with someone with Alzheimer's or right. a severe mental disability as well. The nice thing about with animals is that the science is on this revolutionary forefront as well. In that, and you and I have probably talked about this before. That, you know, if you go back to the same time period we're talking about where someone with a disability was just treated as a, you know, let's just make sure they're institutionalized and we physically are able to feed them and bathe them so that they don't become too disgusting or die or something, right? Right, the basic, well, basic, basic sort of approach, yeah. Right. But, you know, we, we also took that approach in this, with animals, like trying to figure out what they need, you know. How much space do they need? How many mates do they need? How much food do they need? But today, the science of what is called compassionate conservationism um, and compassionate biology starts to say, you know what, animals like humans, no matter what their um, intelligence level is or, or what their um, level of um, ability to express it to us, have really rich emotional and social lives. And so we have Martha's theory, right, about, well, we should, we should focus our law on protecting the capabilities of, of animals, human and non-human alike. And we have the science saying they have capabilities. You know, it's not just all um, speculative. We can show that animals have mean, can live meaningful lives. So now we are in a better position than we were just when we were just arguing autonomy intelligence to sort of say to judges and to lawmakers, you know, we've got to protect these. We have a moral obligation um, under the capabilities theory, and we have the scientific knowledge to know that it will matter if we protect it. We will be able to see that the animals 
are not their their um, capability of living a meaningful life isn't being diminished because of us. And how do we define that, though, Michael? How do we define that standard where we're not diminishing their capabilities? Well, it's tough, you know. I think that as a good person and an animal rights activist, I think I should start with the assumption that all animals are able to live a capable life and my interference with that should be avoided at all costs. Now, saying that I'm a good person and I believe that is different than saying the law should provide it. And I think that's a, 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 is a slow track. I think what we have to do is you know, continue to rely on the development of science. So I believe, for instance, and you know this from our past conversations, that there is enough information right now to make a legal case that we have diminished the meaningful lives of animals like whales in captivities, elephants in captivities, um, uh, chimpanzees in captivities, some large mammals. Just because we could note their behavior, we, we could even, using neurology, measure changes in their brain functions based upon the stress we induce on, to them. Um, whether we separate them from their mates and or whether we keep them in a confined area, we could start to measure this. Now it's up to the science to start showing, you know, start getting down to, you know, well, how do, uh, how do the storks feel being, uh, you know, taken from the wild and stuck, you know, in captivity? Uh, how does, um, how do blackbirds feel when we tear down all the trees to build houses? I think these are things that we have to try to be aware that there is likely an impact and, push and praise science to move forward to be able to demonstrate it so we can demonstrate it to judges and lawmakers and and then i guess the end re, uh, result would that you would desire would be not uh, having in captivity uh, or the, the whales or elephants or storks uh, so that they can live uh, to, to their potential to their capabilities and and uh, and have have not not have them oppressed by human animals so much. That's right. And you know, it's really. We, I mean, we don't really know ultimately in 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 fifty or sixty or seventy years what we may know. I mean, it, it very well could be that you can create an an environment where humans could could interact with certain animals and make it less stressful on them, less infringing on their capabilities of living a meaningful life. That is, maybe the zoos of today are detrimental to them, but maybe some animals could do well in an alternative type of zoo that we don't even know what that looks like today. But I think what's important is is that we, we need to, just as a, a people, be accepting of the fact that this may be true for animals that we may be making them very miserable and diminishing their natural innate capabilities of living a meaningful life and be willing to accept that where science can demonstrate it to some reasonable certainty that we should make it illegal and try to use our laws to, to lessen our impacts on these animals. And, and where, where would we draw the line? I mean, obviously I think most people, not Mike, well, actually I can't say most people, but, I know I would agree clearly that you should not be going out for for a big game to mount a head on your wall. Uh, mm -hmm. 
that is unnecessary. Zoos I have also issues with because of the confinement and how animals are taken out of their habitat and such. But you mentioned blackbirds in a forest. If a forest needs to be taken down for, uh, you know, let's just assume uh, a, a genuinely good project that would benefit human beings, do we do we not do we forego that project that would help our species <clears throat> to save or to to save another species from from stress or, mm-hmm. or pain well first i mean just one quick thing i i, I and i don't know i mean there's just so much we don't know about about it i think what's what's really uh, exciting right now is that scientists are embracing the idea that the animals do have capabilities, and they're really excited about studying it in all different levels. And it may turn out down the road, right, that that a mouse, if you ever seen the movie uh, A Mouse Trap, you know how it's yeah. living that really comfortable life, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it had all kinds of capabilities. But I'm just saying it may turn out that mice have, like, really, really dynamic lives, and they're capable of, of, of really experiencing a wide range of emotions and, and, and feelings. And it could turn out like an animal, like a rhino is just a lump, you know, we just don't know. Right. Right. So we should be careful to judge it on any one character. Right. I mean, you know, it's, it's easy to envision a rhino just standing around with, you know, an IQ of two or something like that, <laughs> not knowing what's going on and, and, and being happy anywhere. Right. Um, but we just don't know. That's the point. But to answer your question, I'm not saying we should make this stuff illegal. What I'm saying is, is that, uh, and we call it a right to ethical consideration, that because these animals are likely to be able to live meaningful lives and whatever that, that means to them and to their species. So it's a very species by species approach, which helps with the science because then they, you know, they could study it on that basis. But we, we shouldn't take action and not consider that. that we, should have, we should have an ethical duty to consider it. So if we're going to clear a forest, we should have to disclose that to the public, and we should have to take it into consideration. And you don't, that itself could fundamentally alter our world in the future, right? When we first had to start realizing that people that we used to say were in a vegetative state still experienced emotions. They still made people around them happy. They still were able to form bonds with certain people. Once we realized that when we just shove them in an institution, how awful that was, and we gave those people a right of ethical consideration, our view of them evolved, the laws protecting them evolved, and now we try to do what we can to give them tools that make them capable of living a more meaningful life, no matter what state they're in. And we don't call it a vegetative state anymore either. That changed as well because of a right of ethical consideration, really propelled by Martha's capability approach and and other philosophical um, thinking in that area, moral thinking in that area. And so that's what I'm saying. It sounds radical to say today, if we know that there are, let's say, owls, in the forest that we need to build a housing track uh, um, that those, and we know that those owls are intelligent. They have social lives. Um, they're, they clearly have emotional feelings or whatever that it should be illegal. That's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that 
we should give them a equal consideration as we would members of our own species when we are interpacting them. And if in 25 years from now, people don't want to tear down forests that have owls in it, well, that's a natural evolution of law and society. I like it. I like it. I, I mean, that is an obvious uh, comparison, maybe an unfair sort of uh, uh, vice versa duality, but uh, it's, it's, it's something that people would go to immediately. Like, well, you want us to, to uh, harm ourselves, our own species, for another quote-unquote lesser species? I mean, and then you get into all of that, you know, well, we are the, the dominant animal on the planet. For those who even are comfortable calling us animals, some aren't even, don't even consider us animals. Um, yeah, they think we're way above that. Yes. Right, right, exactly. Uh, now, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Stephen Weiss. Um, I had him at, at law school where you and I had the good fortune to cross paths back yep. in the 90s. And he actually, he visited us uh, a few months ago here in Denver and watched his new film, Unlocking the Cage. I have great respect for him. Um, but, um, you know, I think I, I think as a lawyer and in a social cause, you, you have to be willing to, like, explore as many creative paths as possible. Uh, I think the autonomy path, path that Steve has, has, ch- has championed over the years is starting to run its course. Right. And now, you, uh, now uh, Martha's path is one to take. I, I do, I believe, personally. And I think you actually might see in the very near future uh, an article by Steve that, that um, starts to take it as well. Yeah, we're trying to get him on the program, actually. We reached out to him a couple of times. We'd like to talk to him as well. Uh, uh, you know, so I think I'm going to have to mention that I was a student of his. I didn't do that yet. Um, I didn't mention it to him either. I figured it would just make us both feel old. <laughs> yeah, him really old, probably. <laughs> but I, when, when you remember when he was presenting how he he tried to uh, convince and understand himself our ethical responsibilities and the way we think as a, as a as a species as a people. He, he was taking us through the earliest philosophers, right up yep. you know through present day Peter Singer and what have you, and up to where we are now. And uh, you have to take that into consideration because it informs how we do look at ourselves and all other creatures on this planet. You know, for example, you if you're a Christian or a Catholic, St. Thomas Aquinas has influenced you greatly in the way that you look at other animals, the way you look at the natural environment. Uh, you, you do. You really do. I mean, and, and, you know, the thing about it is I think this is where Steve runs into a little bit of a problem is that, you know, when it all boils down to all of the philosophical thoughts about animals for the last few hundred years – you know, the two dominant approaches have been pain, suffering, pleasure, right? So these are sort of the, what you sh- should be looking at. I mean, is it enough that an animal could suffer pain and, or do they also have to enjoy pleasure? And does that pleasure have to be not just in the body but in the mind, right? Right. And then the other approach has been intelligence, which is a more recent approach. And unfortunately, I think – Steve's autonomy approach has been too connected to intelligence because at the end of the day, he doesn't really know how to define it. Right. And when he picks animals like chimpanzees, they're going, well, you're just focusing on intelligence. So, so there's, a, there's a flaw there that he can't get past now when, when trying to craft his arguments. I think so. Yeah. And, and I think Martha's work really gets 
gets him. And uh, we can still talk about autonomy. I think that's important. I mean, in fact, one of Martha's central capabilities is bodily integrity, right? Right. Um, so it's one, of, but she has 12, you know. Now, that doesn't mean every individual, whether that you're talking about humans or, or an animal, you know, a, a non-human animal, has to be able to live a capable life of all 12 of them in, in that sense. Um, but, um, and I don't know if she would say you'd have to live more than one either, but when you look at the list, which is like, I'll just read it, life, bodily health, bodily integrity, play, sense, imagination, thought, emotion, practical reason, affiliation, and control over one's environment. Um, most animals display multiple ones. I mean, they do have bodily integrity. They have life. Many of them have some sense of imagination and thought and play and so forth. And these are the capabilities we're talking about. Yeah, these are what Martha calls your 12 central capabilities. I have at least one or two of them, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I I, I do too, although, you know. It depends on the day. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. And I will say this, I I like to point out that uh, all of this that we're talking about, Martha's work and this right of ethical consideration – uh, it, it actually it actually has historical roots in a show that we all adore called Star Trek, because it's the primary mission not to interfere with life. You're right. <laughs> so we've actually taken a huge step back in that sense on our own planet. Um, but if you remember, that was always this underlying uh, moral dilemma particularly when the species was by its very nature harmful to the crew of the Enterprise. I remember. That's a, that's great. You know, artists oftentimes are ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, Michael Harris, that's about all the time we have for this go-round on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Again, this is Michael Harris, a good friend of mine, and more importantly, for you guys, a very, very intelligent, capable, to say the least, uh, attorney for the Friends of Animals organization. He's the director of Wildlife Law. And I think as years go on, Michael, um, we'll be talking about you in a similar context as we've been talking about some of these other folks today. I really uh, am very impressed and very proud of all you're doing. Well, thank you, E.W. I appreciate that. And I'm very happy to be writing the coattails of Martha Nussbaum a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you should. Uh, <laughs> So until next time, good luck with everything. And, and I, I also you know, want to talk to you in the future about uh, what you think regarding uh, the present um, uh, administration and Congress in, in, uh, in D.C. and how that affects some of what you're doing. I think I'll go get a drink. So. <laughs> that might be a good idea. Okay. All right, Thanks. sir. Bye. Bye. Rising over streets so barren Since the evening Colors flash before my eyes I feel like a child so young and new In 92 I listened To what my father said Keep all your dreams Keep standing tall 
If you are strong, you cannot fall. There is a voice inside our soul. So smile when you can. When you can. How this used to feel so far and free. Now these broken souls are all I see. Fists have fallen to our side. We may cry alone. I feel we know where all of this is headed. But my mama said, Keep all your dreams, keep standing tall. Oh, na na na. If you are strong, you cannot fall. If you are strong, oh no. Inside us all, so smile when you can. When you can.
Here's an op-ed piece by moderate conservative, if that makes any sense. David Brooks from the New York Times, February 3rd, 2017, it was published, titled, A Return to National Greatness. The Library of Congress main building is one of the most magnificent buildings in Washington or in the country. It was built in a pivotal, tumultuous time during the 23 years in the late 19th century that it took to design and build the structure. Industrialization transformed America. More people immigrated to America than in the previous 250 years combined. The building articulates the central animating idea that held this bursting, turbulent country together. That idea is best encapsulated in the mural under the dome of the main reading room. A series of monumental figures are depicted, each representing a great civilization in human history and what that civilization contributed to the human story. It starts with a figure representing Egypt, written records, and then continues through Judea, religion, Greece, philosophy, Islam, physics, Italy, the fine arts, Germany, printing, Spain, discovery, England, literature, France, emancipation, and it culminates with America, science. In that story, America is placed at the vanguard of the great human march of progress. America is the grateful inheritor of other people's gifts. It has a spiritual connection to all people in all places, but also an exceptional role. America culminates history. It advances a way of life and a democratic model that will provide people everywhere with dignity. The things Americans do are not for themselves only, but for all mankind. This historical story was America's true myth. When we are children, and also when we are adults, we learn our deepest truths through myth. Myths don't make a point or purpose an argument. They inhabit us deeply and explain to us who we are. They capture how our own lives are connected to the universal sacred realities. In myth, the physical stuff in front of us is also a manifestation of something eternal, and our lives are seen in the context of some illimitable horizon. That American myth was embraced and lived out by everybody from Washington to Lincoln to Roosevelt to Reagan. It was wrestled with by John Winthrop and Walt Whitman. It gave America a mission in the world to spread democracy and freedom. It gave us an attitude of welcome and graciousness to embrace the huddled masses yearning to breathe free and to give them the scope by which to realize their powers. But now the myth has been battered. It's been bruised by an educational system that doesn't teach civilization 
history or real American history, but instead a shapeless multiculturalism. It's been bruised by an intellectual culture that can't imagine providence. It's been bruised by people on the left who are uncomfortable with patriotism and people on the right who are uncomfortable with the federal government that is necessary to lead our project. The myth has been bruised, too, by the humiliations of Iraq and the financial crisis, by a cultural elite that ignored the plight of the working class and thus broke faith with the basic solidarity that binds a nation. And so along come men like Donald Trump and Stephen Banyan with the counter-myth. Their myth is an alien myth, frankly, a Russian myth. It holds, as Russians' reactionaries hold, that deep in the heartland are the pure folk who embody the pure soul of the country, who endure the suffering and make the bread. But the pure peasant soul is threatened. It is threatened by the cosmopolitan elites and by the corruption of foreign influence. The true American myth is a dynamic and universal one, embracing strangers and seizing possibilities. The Russian myth that Trump and Banyan have injected into the national bloodstream is static and insular. It is about building walls, staying put. Their country is bound by its nostalgia, not its common future. The odd thing is that the Trump-Banyan myth is winning. The policies that emanate from it are surprisingly popular. The refugee ban has a lot of support. Closing off trade is popular. Building the wall is a winning issue. The Trump and Banyan Anschluss has exposed the hollowness of our patriotism. It has exposed how attenuated our vision of national greatness has become and how easy it was for Trump and Banyan to replace a youthful vision of American greatness with a reactionary alien one. We are in the midst of a great war of national identity. We thought we were in an ideological battle against radical Islam, but we are really fighting the national myths spread by Trump, Banyan, Putin, Le Pen, and Farage. We can argue about immigration and trade and foreign policy, but nothing will be right until we restore and revive the meaning of America. Are we still the purpose-driven experiment Lincoln described and Emma Lazarus wrote about, assigned by providence to spread democracy and prosperity, to welcome the stranger, to be brother and sister to the whole human race, and to look after one another because we are all important in this common project? Or are we just another nation, hunkered down in a fearful world?
So sexy, so sultry, so wild and cool and free. The diphthong be magical and on sale this weekend for you and me. I can't teach you anything. Please, teacher, teach me something. Nice teacher, teach me something. I'm as awkward as a camel. That's not the worst. My two feet haven't met yet, but I'll be the teacher's pet yet, cause I'm going to learn to dance on birds. Nothing's impossible, I have found. When my chin is on the ground, I pick myself up. Dust myself off, start all over again Don't lose your confidence if you slip Be grateful for a pleasant trip And pick yourself up, dust yourself off Start all over again Work like a soul inspired Till the battle of the day is won You may be sick and tired But you'll be a man, my son Will you remember the famous men had to fall to rise again So take a deep breath Pick yourself up Dust yourself off Start all over again I'll get some self-assurance If your endurance is great I'll learn by easy stages If you're courageous and wait To feel the strength I want to I must hang on to your hand Maybe by the time I'm 50, I'll get up and do a nifty. All right, I'll show you again. Now remember, three steps to the left, three steps to the right. That's the right. And turn. Right. One, two, three. One, two, three. I know, I'm fine. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. No one could teach you to dance in a million years. And there you have it, episode 213 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks that made this episode possible. First and foremost, my good friend and great legal 
and philosophical thinker, Attorney Michael Harris from the organization Friends of Animals. It was wonderful talking with you, old buddy. Also, I'd like to thank David Brooks for sharing his intellect and insight, as well as these great musical artists. The Specials, Peter Wolf, Childish Gambino, J.D. McPherson, Brantford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. Have a wonderful week. Talk with you soon. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>